There'll be no reading or writing on the show today, but we will be doing some arithmetic. Category Math with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 2nd. It's show number 42 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN about category math, late season tactics, the Sanchez, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at five players including Chris Bryant and DJ LeMahieu. And in our American League report, Jock Thompson looks at players including Byron Buxton and Joan Moncada. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Mets outfield and finds a stretch run speculation on the mound in Oakland. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including a Saturday Cy Young level showdown between San Francisco left-hander Madison Bumgarner and Cubs righty Jake Arrieta at Wrigley Field. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the thrilling tale of winning the Tout Daily Championship. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're into September. The pennant races are on. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with news from the American League and leading off players from the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Nick, the Cubs' third baseman, Chris Bryant, came into 2016 with very high expectations after a very impressive $28 rookie season that included 26 homers, 99 RBIs, and even 13 bags. He's going to lag that total in stolen bases a little bit this year, but his other fantasy stats have gotten even better. Now the question is whether his base skills support this excellent season, an increase in uh, value over the two seasons, and of course that helps us look forward to next year. Greg Pyron looked at Bryant in his Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage. What did Greg say about this sensational young third baseman? Well, you know, when you look at the numbers, I mean, the numbers are sensational. A 305 batting average right now, 35 home runs, eight stolen bases. Uh, and, and so the question, as you said, is, is this, is this real? And if we look at it, we, we see, yes, it does seem to be real. I mean, there's been some real skills growth this year. Last year, a 64% contact rate. This year, a 74% contact rate. So a huge increase in contact rate, which is, of course, is, is wonderful. Hit rate is actually down a little bit. But his hard hit contact index is higher, uh, his power index is higher, expected power is higher, hitting more home runs per fly ball. I mean, th- this is just uh, a real growth year for Chris Bryant, uh, and I think everything that we're seeing from him is, is absolutely real, and can. I'm not sure we've seen a ceiling yet. Well, that's interesting if we haven't seen a ceiling, because this is pretty good. Uh, the... The uh, the big change, as you mentioned, is the contact rate up 11 points. Uh, I have them at 75%, so that's an 11-point gain. And all those other hitting metrics, like the skill metrics you mentioned, are are uh, up across the board. 
and his ground ball, fly ball, line drive rate has actually seen a few less grounders and a few more line drives, fly, fly balls being pretty constant. This all sounds pretty good for 2017, Nick. Do you expect to see Chris Bryant as a top four or five player next year in uh, mixed drafts? Well, absolutely should be. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about a guy who's now 24 years old and still in a, ought to be in a growth curve, so certainly should be one of the top uh, top four or five in a mixed league draft, I would think. The question I, I do have is uh, he's got a 38% hit rate last year, which seemed unsustainable. It's off three points this year. Is there any concern, Nick, that he drops back down to more like 30 31% as many hitters do, or is this a, a skill set that says, hey, you know, th- this many line drives and that much bat speed, he's going to have his hits? You know, I, I think this could be. You know, we, we've uh, we've talked before about the fact that hit rate is something that's individual to particular ball players, and while thirty eight percent is certainly way too high, I'm not sure that thirty five percent is, given the bat speed and given the number of line drives that Chris Bryant hits and and how hard he hits the ball. Three oh seven batting average this year, uh, based on that line drive rate and that hard hit rate, I think it I, does look sustainable to me as well. Now, thirty seven dollars is what he's earned so far in five by five leagues. Do you think that uh, forty dollars is a possibility? I think it is. I mean, I think it's. I think that's within reach, and especially with those stolen bases. And at this point, uh, at this point, he's still being given a chance to run, and as long as they allow him to do that, he's got enough speed to, to put up some bags. One other thing I think that adds to Chris Bryant's value is the fact that uh, they are playing him uh, in multiple positions this year. Joe Madden's a bit of an innovator as far as uh, player position use is concerned, and he seems to be comfortable with uh, Chris Bryant not just anchoring down third base, but he's uh, shifted him in a few other places in the diamond. Yeah, very definitely, and that, that of course, helps. I mean, the, uh, the multi-position eligibility is, is definite, a definite help from a fantasy standpoint. Uh, and uh, so just just adds to his value. If you're keeping score at home, he has 89 games at third base so far this year, 54 in the outfield, and he's played uh, just six at first base. He's unlikely to get there. But even third base outfield combined is a, is a useful thing for most fantasy lineups. Uh, the, the roster flexibility really helps. Nick, the Mets have had some pretty spotty production of late from their outfielders and recalled uh, Michael Conforto from a demotion that a lot of analysts thought was ill-advised in the first place. Greg Pyron also analyzes player moves in the National League East for playing time tomorrow. What does Greg say about Michael Conforto and the Mets? Well, you know, Michael Conforto has had one of those one of those perplexing seasons for a uh, a young ball player. I mean, started out hot as he could be in April, hit three sixty five with four home runs and eighteen RBIs, and looked like he was on the way to really posting a tremendous season. And then suddenly went into a bad slump in May and stayed in that slump all the way uh, through the first half and into July and. Uh, they finally decided to send him down because the guy was hitting 192 in August and only one home run, one, only one home run in the second half. Uh, and things he got straight, seemed to get, get straightened out very quickly in the minor leagues, uh, and now is back up. And, you know, it's very clear that Michael Conforto has, uh, has the skills to really be productive in that Mets lineup. So if they give him a chance to play, uh, it certainly is a, a situation where he could have a good September. On the other hand, it's hard to know how much playing time he will get. Will he be in there every day, which is what the Mets said they wanted when they sent him down, or will he find spotty playing time, which of course can lead with some players to very spotty production. Part of the issue last year uh, for Michael Conforto was a pretty bad split against left-handed pitching, and that got even worse this year. Uh, last year he hit 214 against left-handers with a 481 OPS. This year 
a 109 batting average and just a 290 OPS against left-handed pitching. And I guess the question is going to be whether he's got that straightened out because if he hasn't, he'll uh, his future seems destined or doomed, if you prefer, to being a platoon. He's got the right side of the platoon against right-handed pitching, but it really cuts into his value potential. Yeah, it very definitely does. If he can't, if he can't straighten out that split against left-handed pitchers and keep struggling against them the way the way that he has. But those those numbers right now are just gigantic. I mean, forty-six at bats against left-handed pitchers, and we're looking at a at a twenty-one px compared to a one fifty-seven power index against right-handed pitching. That's that's huge. And so, uh, if he's not able to straighten that out, as you said, he's going to wind up as a platoon player. Also, I'm a little concerned uh, that even considering everything, last year his contact rate was up around 80%, this year closer to 70%, and that's a trend that is really worrying because it sounds like a guy who's either lost control of the plate or he's pressing and trying too hard, but something's really gone wrong when a player loses almost 10 points off his contact. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a young ball player, and certainly it may be something that uh, he may be pressing, he may be trying too hard, he may be uh just just kind of struggling to adjust you know we 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 know that baseball is a game of adjustments uh, pitchers adjust and now it's his turn to adjust and uh he may be struggling a bit to do that uh but certainly as as a you know we're talking about a 23 year old ball player here so plenty of time for him to make those adjustments uh but as you said that that uh, that platoon split is absolutely critical the Mets are um, not exactly uh, sanguine about their uh, about how much time they can afford to let anybody hit in there who's not hitting. They're two games out in the wild card race behind the Giants and Cardinals. Uh, they they need to get some wins and they need to get them fast. And Curtis Granderson and Jay Bruce both have OPSs recently around 500, which is sort of 300 points short of where they need to be. Does that augur well for Conforto's chances of getting some swings with these two guys uh, clearly struggling? Well, you know, yes, it does. I think it, it but Conforto's going to have to produce as well. I mean, his first game back, one, one out of three, which as a batting line doesn't look bad, but he hit into a double play with the bases loaded when he could have uh, produced some runs and, uh, bases loaded, nobody out, and he hits into a double play. So, uh, that doesn't, uh, uh, certainly did not endear him to the manager at that point. Yeah, and, and it seems like Terry Collins just doesn't like this guy for whatever reason. And if that's the case, then any sort of single uh, one for three looks okay, but he's going to remember that uh, ground out double play with the bases loaded more because that's the way he's inclined to think about this player. I, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with uh, Conforto for the rest of this season because I think it also is going to have an impact on how he plays next year. Yeah, I think it will. Uh, in the Batting Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at hitters whose skills have surged or faded since the All-Star break, and one really interesting name on the list of surging hitters is Colorado second base D.J. LeMahieu, who's having a really good year. He's having a tremendous year. You know, I, I like to talk about D.J. LeMahieu because he's an LSU, LSU ball player and got a chance to see him play, and it's, it's really neat to see him uh, playing as well as he hit, but as he is. But he really is having a tremendous year. And in the second half, talk about surging skills. In the second half, this guy has hit 369. I mean, that that's just amazing. And certainly he plays in Colorado, so some of that is, and he gets better at home than he does in the road. So certainly some of that is a Colorado-based stat, but not all of it. I mean, he's hitting well enough in the road that you put him in there anyway, but then you put him in a situation where he's hitting uh, almost 400 in Colorado, and uh, you've got a heck of a ball player. 
you do have he's batting 345 his on base percentage is 418 if you're and even if you're not in an on base league you got to love those players with a very high on base average because it leads to so many other things he's going to score more runs he's already ahead of last year's run pace he had 85 in a full season last year he's at 89 already this year and his stolen base count is not going to match uh, last year's 23 but because he's on base if he's got any speed skills at all which DJ LeMay who clearly has then He's going to be able to uh, exploit those speed skills in the form of stolen bases, runs scored, and all these other kind of things. DJ LeMahieu is putting together a, a $30 season, and a lot of it has been in the second half, as you say. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, uh, certainly a guy that uh, kind of snuck under the radar, I think, in a lot of leagues early, even though he did well last year. But certainly no one, I think, expected what we're seeing at the moment. And um, I think the, the part of what you look at in the second half, if you look at the uh, – the, the Colorado needs to give him more of a green light on the bases, a 5% SBO in the second half. So they're not letting him run very much. I think if they turned him loose, we would certainly see that speed put to uh, to better use on the base paths. Well, he has a, a decent shot at winning the batting title in the National League at 345. And uh, among the OPS leaders, he's a top 10 guy there as well at 919, keeping company with the likes of Anthony Rizzo and Ryan Braun. And, uh, you know, well back of Chris Bryant, who's close to 1,000. But but still, uh, DJ LeMahieu, boy, there's a name that's going to be flying up the draft lists next year, I imagine. Uh, Steven Nickrand, also our starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist. And among his post-break skills faders is Washington right-hander Tanner Rourke. And this one might catch people by surprise because in the second half, Tanner Rourke has looked really good from a fantasy perspective. He's got seven wins, ERA under three, a whip around 115. What's the story as far as Steven Nickrand is concerned? Concerned. Well, you know, Tanner Rourke really does look good. I mean, overall for the season, a 2.87 ERA, and looks like he's uh, he should be very, very good. But there's some there's some uh, <coughs> there's some real luck underneath those marks. A 23% hit rate, an 81% strand rate, uh, and the skills are not uh, anything to write home about. A 5.8 DOM, 3.3 uh, control. So we're talking about a command ratio that is under two at this point. Um, Ground ball rate is only 43% and a 35 BPV uh, in the second half. So the, the skills have simply not been there at the moment, um, and we don't see any reason for a skills rebound. Uh, he could turn the other way very, very quickly. Yeah, his swinging strike rate is below 8%. Uh, 40% of his pitches are balls, which is pretty high for a starting pitcher in the big leagues. And uh, I th- I really think the, the overall skills package you outlined, Nick, uh, anytime you get a dominance rate under seven strikeouts per nine in these days, and you said he's under six, uh, the control rate is three walks, over three walks, that's pretty bad. Uh, and that 35 base performance value is a baseball HQ metric that combines all of his skills, you're usually looking for something around 70, and he's at 35. All of these things say stay away. Yeah, they do at this point. I mean, you know, if, if you have him, I would keep writing him, but I would also watch every start to see if uh, if things are going to start turning the other direction. And finally, Nick, for owners looking ahead to next year, September is often a time the teams test drive their potential new closers. In our Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at the 2017 bullpens in the American and National League East divisions, and Doug says we should be keeping an eye on Sean Kelly, who could be the closer in 2017 in Washington. He very well could be. I mean, Malasso is a a free agent, so uh, he's, he's very likely to walk at the end of this season. And uh, Kelly uh, could wind up being the closer. And the skills, Kelly has produced some incredible skills 
during the course of the season. I mean, listen to this. We're talking about a 13 DOM rate, 1.7 control. That works out to be a 7.7 command ratio and a 203 BPV. So this is a guy that looks like he has all the skills he would need to close except for one. Uh, and that is a tendency to give up the long ball. And he seems to sometimes do that in bunches. But at this point, a 1.7 home run per nine rate. Uh, and that has hurt him. It, it hurts him on, in individual games at individual times throughout the season. If you go back and look at his games, games played list, uh, gave up two home runs on July 24th. Uh, not a good thing if you're a closer. Then went without giving a home run for almost a month, and then suddenly on, on August 21st, a home run given up. On August 26th, a home run given up. Took a loss in one of those games. So these things seem to come sort of in bunches for uh, for Kelly and, and might, in fact, affect uh, the manager's decision to put him into the closer role in a, in a uh, very serious way. Here's an issue with sample size too, uh, Nick, as well. The fly ball percentage this year is up around 50%, which is where it was back in 2012, where he was uh, also giving up home runs in, in uh, larger numbers. In 2015, last year, it was down around 38%, and the year before that, 44%. And in both of those years, his home run per nine rate was under one, which is f- considered pretty acceptable. Could this be a manifestation of some kind, just as far as normal variation in how many fly balls this guy's allowing, given the fact that he doesn't pitch that many innings? Well, it might be. Although, if you look back over his record historically, this guy has given up a, a fly ball rate close to 50%. And in some, and you're right, it's a small sample size. But in some years, one year in 2010, 61% fly ball rate. So you, you look at that, 61, 56, 51. So a lot of fly balls are, are a part of his history. Uh, if he could get back to where he was in 2013 with a 38% fly ball rate, this guy could be an elite closer. But as long as he's going to a fly ball rate around 50%, and that seems to have been his norm, then those home runs are going to be an issue. I'll take, uh, I'll disagree with you a little bit on that score, Nick. Uh, you mentioned in 2010 it was up around 61%. He was giving up almost two home runs per nine innings. But he seems to have worked on that and, and perhaps... Um, corrected it out of his game. His 61, then 56, then 51, then 46, then 44, then 38. That's six straight years of declining fly ball rate before a rebound this year. Do we not give him credit for that, for the decline that he notched? And uh, what does that say about the 48 that he bounced back to this year? Well, I think you're right. You're right. There's a, clearly a uh, some, some work been going on in an attempt to get more ground balls. And so that's a, a very, very positive sort of thing. Uh, it's just that that bounce back this year is a little bit scary, but certainly we've seen that he can do a 38% ground, a fly ball rate. And as, as we say at Baseball HQ, once you display a skill, you own it. So if he gets back, that, back around that level, he could be a dynamic closer. Certainly, if I was in a keeper league and had a chance to get Sean Kelly now before the news hits uh, next year, I think I'd do it just on the speculation that he does get that uh, fly ball rate back down under 40%, which would positively affect the home run rate, which is going to positively affect everything else. I mean, uh, he's got an 80% strand rate this year, even with the uh, 1.7 home run rate. Gosh, if he got that home run rate back down under one, he'd be strand rate to be around 90%. He'd be fantastic. Yeah, I think I would too. You know, it's a good time to sneak Sean Kelly on your roster in a keeper league because uh, he's not going to cost you much at this point uh, because he's well under the radar, but you, but, uh, as Doug says, he could very well be the closer in Washington next season. And it's worth pointing to the fact that Sean Kelly this year has seven saves, which means in situations where they the closer was tired or had pitched two games in a row, Sean Kelly has become the go-to guy for the Nationals in situations where the closer might not be uh, available. 
that's uh, that says something about the manager's trust in him. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, he's already being being allowed to have some safe situations that has converted uh, converted most of them. Okay, Nick, uh, interesting session. Thanks very much for helping us out with players from the National League, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League, and it's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back on the show. Lots of stuff happening in the American League. Perhaps the biggest news in Boston, they've called up Joan Moncada, their top prospect, a really good prospect across the board. Jeremy Deloney wrote this up at BaseballHQ.com in the Daily Call-Ups report. Matt Dodge covered the roster situation in Boston for playing time today. So, how will Boston use Joan Moncada, and is he worthwhile for adding... Of course, he's going to be worthwhile adding in keeper leagues, but what about single-season leagues where you only get a month out of him? You know, anyone with the tools that uh, Mankata has is, is is even a good small sample play. Um, he's got great plate skills. It's it's kind of similar in that regard to uh, what I thought about Alex Bregman. Uh, I thought he had the, the tools to succeed uh, in Houston real quickly, and after his first 30 at-bats, which were a nightmare, he finally is. He's actually raking over there, but back to Mankata, he has the same kind of plate discipline. Um, and, and better than Bregman, he has, uh, Bregman has good, good running speed, good, a good base running game, but Mankata has a terrific base running game. So if he gets on, the Red Sox could, uh, make use of that, that. The real question is, where does he play? Um, does Boston trust him at third base? They just switched him there from second to third. And how much time does he get? Uh, um, we have him projected now uh, at 50% for the rest of September over Travis Shaw and Aaron Hill. I'm not certain of this. Um, Shaw, both Shaw and Hill have slumped badly uh, in August. Uh, both are hitting below 200. Um, and, and the Red Sox have Brock Holt there. Uh, stranger things have happened, I guess. They, they could give him uh, uh, half or most of the playing time at, uh, at third base. Uh, the 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 problem I see with with Mankata in the short term, look at that 69% contact rate in the minors. And when you're talking about a guy who who has only uh, only a few hundred at bats in in Double A now, he hasn't had any Triple A experience. That could hurt him in his first go around. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays. We should say that in high A and double A through 400 at bats, he has 15 homers, 45 stolen bases, caught 12 times though, which is kind of a little bit concerning as well. Uh, I think the question is going to be, and we're going to have to watch this very closely as he starts out in Boston. Does he get the playing time? They're in a, they're in a really tough battle in the American League East with Toronto and a little less so with Baltimore, but that's going to be a tight race. There's wild card considerations as well, even for the team that doesn't win. And they're not going to throw a, 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 an untried rookie with no triple A time. As you say, he's not going to get a, a ton of looks if he's not, if they're not real convinced that he can contribute right away. Well, to, to use that old adage, they're going to try to put him into matchups and situations where they think he can succeed, and they're going to see what happens. They'll play it uh, uh, probably game by game. If they give him a start and he gets two hits, chances are he'll be in there the next night. Uh, um, that's how September's going to go. It's going to be interesting to watch. I suspect there might be a, a pretty good likelihood of him playing, uh, getting a lot of pinch hitting and pinch running opportunities, which could actually be beneficial because if they put him in there to, to run the bases, he'll score some runs, he'll steal some bases without racking up a lot of strikeouts and potentially low batting average. And in pinch hitting, maybe they're send him up there and say, swing for the fences, kid, you got nothing to lose because we're behind or, or something like that. 
I think that uh, he's an interesting guy. He's been bandied around a lot of leagues, I know, as a trade chip because guys who happen to be near the top of their leagues and hold Yoan Moncada are worried that if they roster him and start him, he could actually drag down their batting averages, and uh, they don't want that. So uh, there's going to be some opportunities here, I think, Jock. Yeah, and that uh, you mentioned it before, that 45-12 to 12 stolen base caught stealing rate is almost 80%. That's awfully impressive uh, for, for someone of his experience. So I think they're going to – the Red Sox will use that in, uh, um, in, uh, in, in use him as a pinch runner in certain situations. Eighty percent in the minor leagues doesn't translate to eighty percent in the majors, but it is a skill that moves a lot more readily than does for contact rate. For instance, you mentioned sixty-nine percent. That's likely to drop as he hits the major leagues and is a real source of concern. Now, speaking of of prospects, we have a guy who was another very highly rated prospect. Byron Buxton was a number one overall prospect just within the last couple of years. He's back from AAA with the Twins. And he went one for three with a three-run homer in his first game back against the White Sox on Thursday. But he's still got a sub-Mendoza batting average, and he's uh, really having trouble making contact as yet. Alex Becky wrote this up for playing time today. Can Buxton finally begin to realize some of this potential and help a fantasy team for September? Well, it's kind of funny. We just got talk, done talking about Mankata and the, the guy he replaced in, uh, at most, uh, as number one, uh, prospect in the majors, uh, and which he is on most consensus lists was Buxton for the last couple of years. Um, and Buxton is a classic example of how all the very best prospects just don't succeed immediately or grow to the moon. I own him in, in one of my keeper leagues. He's been a big source of frustration for me. Uh, He's still a toolbox with big upside, but he has really struggled with place discipline and uh, pitch recognition, which hurts him at the major league level. Uh, not so much in the minors. If, if you look at what he's done there, 180, or I'm sorry, 190 at bats, 305 batting average, 11 home runs, 7 for 7 stolen base wise, and he's better than this. He could probably be 12 for 12 if he wanted to, but he's, he's got a 58 to 14 strikeout to walk ratio in AAA, which hasn't hurt him there. And he's got nothing left to prove there. But in Minnesota, that that 60% contact rate is killing him. Uh, he's only got a 192 batting average. Um, the bottom line is he he still has enough skill, power and speed-wise, and defense, too, for a major league career. But his floor is starting to recede a little bit. Uh, and and he might not have quite the career that um, um, some have pro- projected for him. He's... Uh, He's 22. Um, I would love to see him change organizations or Minnesota do something in that organization to help some of these these talents that they get advanced. But uh, I think the jury's still out on Buxton. Yeah, I think there's a possibility that Buxton could be one of those guys who has a lot of hype. He's sitting at the top of the Baseball America list, at the top of the BaseballHQ.com prospects list, a can't-miss prospect, and he comes up and he misses. And sometimes what people forget, Jock, is Major League Baseball is really hard. It's really hard to hit a major league pitcher. And, and he's finding that out. And it may be that it'll take him till he's 23, 24, 25. And then all of a sudden you get a Nick Franklin who we'll talk about in a second, or you get, you know, somebody who has scuffled around for a few years trying to figure out what he's doing, maybe maturing a little bit physically and emotionally. And all of a sudden he puts it together, but it may not be this year. It may not be next year. It may not be ever, but I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, sometime down the road we're talking about, uh, you know, the 26 year old 
Byron Buxton moving to a new organization and all of a sudden exploding on the scene when he's actually had it there all the time. It was just on a slow fuse. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and players with skills like Buxton just they don't grow on trees. Uh, and that's why this game, both baseball and the and the the silly fantasy version of it we play, are are so tough. You just never know when a guy like this is going to break through. You mentioned it with uh, Moncada. You mentioned it with Buxton as well, and I'll mention it again. He's sixty uh, percent contact rate this year at the major league level, which is even worse than sixty-six percent last year. And even in the minor leagues at AAA, he was below seventy percent, and uh, same as Moncada. And that has to be a source of concern for a guy who has as much time in the minors at this point as Buxton does. He just doesn't seem to be putting the bat on the ball with enough regularity to guarantee himself a decent outing at the major league level. Yeah, and the other frustrating thing is his walk rate. His plate skills just aren't very good right now. Uh, if he was being a little more patient, my guess is he would, he would probably have a few more home runs than he does. Uh, he'd be able to sit on some pitches and drive the ball, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Yet his power is such he's he's got a very good home run uh, uh rate in the minors and even his uh, power index at, uh, at at the major league level is actually pretty decent at 114th. I mentioned Nick Franklin a second ago. His name is in the news now because of the complete flame-out of another top-10 prospect. Desmond Jennings of Tampa was released. He's had a few okay, decent seasons, but really never came close to living up to his prospect potential. Uh, Nick Franklin is now suddenly being very impressive as a utility player. He's getting quite a bit of time in the outfield. What's your outlook on Nick Franklin? And I'll give you a spoiler alert. I really like Nick Franklin for, for the coming years. Yeah, you and me both. I'm, I'm thrilled with Franklin's resurgent because I own him in, in two of my main uh, keeper leagues. He's had a history of struggling uh, as he advanced levels, at, but also making contact at the major league level. I mean, you look at his 2013 when he first appeared and then through 2015, his numbers got progressively worse when he was with the uh, the Mariners. They finally gave up on him. Um, um, now he's over in Tampa Bay and he's finally starting to make contact, his uh, better contact. His walk rate is improving. His power numbers are improving. He's still running the way he used to when we saw him back in the Arizona Fall League. Like you suggested, this is a former top 100 prospect. He used to be a shortstop. He's still getting a little bit of time in the middle of the infield, but now he's playing all over the all over the field. He's playing uh, in Desmond Jennings' old position in left field, playing a little second base, playing some first base. This is a guy, and he's raking right-handers right now. That's the best part of his performance, and that's primarily who he's playing against right now. This is a guy who now suddenly in the second half uh, of this year has won a role with with Tampa Bay. He's not going to get benched if he gets a few overs, and it looks like he has a job and opportunity going forward. This is a Tampa Bay team that has been seeking offense for a long time, and all of a sudden Nick Franklin is giving it to them. Nick Franklin also managing to avoid the uh, usual knock on a lot of players like him in that he's managing to hit fairly well against left-handers and really well against right-handers, but he's not an easy out against against same-side pitching, which is a plus for him. And something else, I, I when I was looking at Nick Franklin's historical rates, in any one of his given four major league years, you're going to find something to like. But in none of the four years are you going to find everything to like. And it seems to me this is a case of a player who just needs to get it all together. Yeah, and it's what's, what was interesting about him when I when I began to notice him on our free agent lists in, uh, in our keeper leagues, I looked at his age immediately, and he's still only 25 years old. It's, it's amazing. Here I thought, well, he must be 27, 28. He's been out of sight, out of mind for a long time. But uh, 25 years old, he's got a future ahead of him. 
Yes, he should should just be coming into his his maximum years. He's through his growth phase. He's managed to stick in the major leagues at least part of the time through some pretty difficult times as a young player. And this could be another case just like uh, some of the other guys we're talking about, Byron Buxton, Desmond Jennings, not so much. But you have to be patient with some players because they just don't get it right away. And it looks like Nick Franklin may be one of those guys. He's definitely going on my sleepers list for 2017. And I suspect by the time the 2017 draft season rolls around, he might not be that good of a sleeper. Yeah, in fact, um, he's got a whole month to go this year, and he's been red hot in the second half. So he may not be a sleeper by the end of September here. More prospect call-ups in Texas. They've called up Johander Menendez, a left-handed pitching prospect, their top guy in the minors. You wrote about the possibility of this happening back in August, and Jeremy Deloney wrote him up in the call-ups page. Is there any chance Johander Mendez can help Texas or a fantasy team in September? Well, the thing I saw in Texas is they have real problems with the back of their rotation, and the they, they did have problems with the front of their bullpen. Um, and I definitely saw uh, Mendez uh, filling a, a gap in there. This is a guy with a with a big arm. Um, he's got a, a good three-pitch repertoire. Scouts and, and analysts are very high on his upside. He's got a very good changeup. The Rangers, are, 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 like most uh, playoff teams, they have these pitching issues, and they're trying to see what they have. Um, he's likely to get his feet wet in long relief now in uh, in September. He could get a spot start or two, and if, if he's successful, maybe more, given the spotty back of the rotation in uh, in Texas. Uh, they're trying to catch lightning in a bottle here, um, and 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 it could happen. The problem Mendez has is inexperience and and the fact that he's, uh, he's probably working on an in- innings limit. He threw 66 innings uh, last year. I think it was his high in the minors. He's up to just over 100 now. Um, and he, he just got into to AAA uh, a couple of weeks ago. He only has 32 innings uh, experience there. He's walked a lot of hitters in those 32 innings, 16. So there's no sure thing here, obviously, in September. This is a very good long-term arm to watch. A career dominance rate of just under nine strikeouts per nine innings in the minor leagues. That usually falls off a bit when you get to the majors, although there's a lot of big swingers in the majors, too, that might actually help. The BaseballHQ.com scouting team is saying he's got potential as a number two starter, but I don't think so in the early going anyway. Yeah, it's kind of tough. I mean, this is a young guy. He's still only 21, so he has a lot of development and some projection uh, to go through. So it uh, be interesting to see how he fares in Texas. He does have a couple of decent pitches and a third one that's not bad, a 90-94 to 94 fastball, plus a developing curve and a decent changeup. So he's got the basics that he needs. Uh, the question is how much uh, use is that going to be in the big leagues? I suspect maybe they'll use him in longer uh, bullpen-type situations rather than starting him, but we shall see. Uh, Coco Crisp, longtime veteran in baseball, started out in Cleveland, I believe. He's back there now, traded there from Oakland. What are the playing time ramifications for both clubs? Well, it's really interesting. You know, Cleveland has had such a hodgepodge of outfielders all year long. They've had uh, Lonnie Chisenhall, Abraham Almonte, uh, Tyler Naquin, Raj Davis, Brandon Geyer, just to name a few. Um, there, it, it, it's. I, I personally don't see uh, um, Chris benefiting in any way from his move um, there. He, he he had 138 second at, half at bats in Oakland. I don't see him getting as much proportionally in in Cleveland. I, I think the Indians are hedging their bets. Uh, Tyler Naquin's begun to begun to slide in August. He's had a terrific season, uh, but he's really struggled. 
and the 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 Indians are postseason competitive. They're going to see what uh, Chris can do for them. Uh, he only he's only hit two ten in the second half for Oakland. So, I, like I said, I don't see much of a, an uptick in playing time or results. Um, in Oakland, uh, they're really rebuilding, and their outfield outfield is just is just not very good, both at the major league level or the minor league levers level. It's going to open up some time for Jake Smolinski and and Brett Eibner, neither of whom will knock anyone's socks off uh, fanalytically. So. Um, I just don't see a lot to look at here. Brett Eibner, of course, is the guy that Oakland got in the trade for Billy Burns. Uh, again, uh, I agree with you. There's not a ton here. He's an older player for a guy who spent most of his career in the minor leagues. Jake Smolinski's kind of just meh. And as for Coco Crisp, uh, they, they pull him in as a switch hitter, but um, he's really been fairly useless against left-handed pitching. A 592 OPS is not that great. 726 versus right-handers, which is pretty much league average. I'm curious what Cleveland was doing here, and I have to say I don't really understand it unless they're quite worried about Naquin. Yeah, um, I agree. And, uh, yeah, I, I probably haven't looked at Cleveland's side of it as much as, as maybe you have here, but uh, that's such a strange mix of outfielders, and they seem to be going game from game. Um, it's worked for them. Obviously, uh, um, when Naquin was uh, was hitting uh, before August, uh, it, it worked very well, and Chisholm Hall as well. But everyone seems to have fallen off a little bit there, which, I, which is why I think um, Crisp is now in tow. It could be that they're doing something uh, that we don't know about analytically, which is really playing matchups to a much greater degree than right-handed versus left-handed, switch hitter versus, you know, whatever, those kind of things. Maybe they've identified something about a crisp-like player who has pretty good chances of success against certain kinds of pitchers that they're that they're struggling with. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, is crisp still considered a defensive asset? I, I haven't seen him play a long time. He's fairly old. That doesn't usually help one's uh, defensive abilities. Yeah, he's not considered a great center fielder anymore, but he's he's probably league average in left. So, uh, um, just you know, more of the same. And I guess if when rosters expand, you 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 get a guy in the league who's been in the league for as long as Chris has. He's experienced. Um, maybe he does give them some advantage against uh, against some of these uh, pitchers, particularly a long time American League hitter. Any chance he's just a pinch runner? Um, hard to say. He's not really running that much. He he doesn't. I don't think he has double digits in uh, in stolen bases this year. Even uh, I think it's another body. There was a time when Coco Crisp was a was a top flight base stealer. Uh, over the last couple of years, his stolen base uh, production has declined pretty steadily. He's got seven bags this year, though, and he's going thirteen percent of the time. That indicates at least a willingness, if not an ability. Sure. Yeah, seven bags. Yeah, he could he could definitely do some running. Although his his speed metrics are certainly down from uh, where they used to be, as uh, as mine mine were at age uh, going on thirty seven. That's right. I I was barely barely mobile at thirty seven, and I'm worse now. Yeah, really. <laughs> Finally, uh, in your neck of the woods, Los Angeles Angels traded reliever Fernando Salas to the Mets. Cam Bedrosian, of course, is out for the season. That's my fault. I drafted him as a uh, obvious closer replacement. He lasted one game, got a save, and then got hurt. So, assuming the Angels have any games to save over these final few weeks, who's going to be the guy who gets the saves? Yeah, this is uh, this is tough on me too. I have to do the. Uh, I'm doing the uh, playing time projections uh, for the Angels, and I still haven't figured out what that closer mix uh, is going to be. I'm I'm all out of predictions for the back of this pen. I mean, they've lost Street and Bedrosian uh, to the DL, and both Joe Smith and Fernando Salas are now gone. You have some sort of a mix of um, Jose Alvarez, J.C. Ramirez, Diolis Guerrero, Mike Morin. Uh, 
I need to work on these projections, and uh, I don't, uh, I don't know, I don't know who's going to be closing games. The interesting thing about the Angels September is. It's not that tough of a schedule. You've got uh, a sputtering Seattle team for a whole bunch of games. I think seven. You've got Oakland for six games. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, uh, Texas for uh, for three, and and Houston, who's been almost a 500 team recently. Uh, so, you know, Salas was pitching well and saving a lot of games uh, over the past week and a half, two weeks uh, since he took over the job, which is, I think, one of the reasons the Mets were attracted to him. So one of these guys could run with it, uh, and and it's not like they're going to be facing great lineups. Um, well, you tell me. You know, anything can happen in the final month. Yeah, I think this has all the makings of whoever hasn't pitched lately will go in there and, and they'll try him out and see if he seems to be able to get the job done. Uh, like I said, I can't see Los Angeles generating a ton of save opportunities anyway. But uh, if I was, you know, in the in the mix in the saves category in a league I was in, and uh, all of these guys were available, I'd certainly keep my eyes open to see if one of them seems to be seizing the role. But that's not happening yet. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Okay, Jock, thanks a million. Uh, appreciate your updates on American League players, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis and a speculator columnist at the site, and he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Back in a second with Todd Zola, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. Baseball HQ has just announced that Sunday morning's keynote speaker at First Pitch Arizona will be Josh Stein, the assistant general manager of the San Diego Padres. You want to be there for that. And remember, you can still get in with $100 savings on registration if you sign up by September 6th. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back, Patrick. It seems like just a month ago we talked. Yeah, it's it's a fairly regular thing, and I'm glad of it. Uh, Todd, let's start by talking a little bit about Daily Fantasy. Last Friday, the Tout Daily Championship wrapped up with a stirring one-point win by some podcast host whose name escapes me, but I'll be talking about my win later in Master Notes. The tie-in DFS league is interesting, you, you find, because more sites are doing this kind of longer-form DFS, if that isn't a contradiction in terms. Yeah, I was actually uh, very pleased to see this. I've written about it and talked about it, and I think we probably talked about it uh, over the course of our chats over the past few years. And basically uh, what Patrick is talking about here, the DFS sites are, to me, finally waking up and offering year-long contests where you, uh, be it, you know, baseball, it could be every day or every week, or I, I don't know yet if you can customize the 
number of times that you play for the contest. But the idea being it's a cumulative point contest and you can play it amongst your buddies. You can uh, join public contests for, for money, but your, your buddies can just be for fun and, and, uh, and, and, and kicks and stuff like that. But the point being, uh, you know, you, not so much point being, but the idea being you, you pick your lineup and you get the points and uh, that happens several times throughout the season. And the champion is the person who has the most points at the end of the year, which is somewhat like we've done for Tout Daily the past couple of years. We break it up into uh, periods to give people that maybe didn't play the first period a chance to come in and play the second, third, or fourth, or fifth period. They got the four-week four uh, challenge and then giving out tickets to the top teams at the end of each four-week period. And they played a one-day championship, which Patrick is referring to. Uh, that we did last Friday. I mean, I don't. Again, I, I haven't. It just came out. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get through the baseball season uh, without missing a deadline. So I'll I'll go read I'll go read about the actual rules to all these things once the season's over. But uh, as someone who prefers to play for the long haul and to show my my wares, my my skill at this game by being a consistently good player as opposed to getting. Uh, the, the, the exact lineup you need in one night to win a tournament. Uh, this, this feeds into my both strength and just sort of fun aspect of the game. So I'm very happy that the sites are uh, switching in this direction or adding this to their repertoire. I think it's going to be a fun thing. It seems like a, a really good way for them also to counter the argument that it's too too much luck-based. If you start saying, well, on a night-to-night basis, there's quite a bit of luck involved. But as you say, if you have to put in, say, three lineups a week for the entire baseball season and you uh, you aggregate all the points you earn over those, over those periods, uh, then obviously it becomes much more of a skill competition than a luck competition. And I, I should point out that in the Tout Daily contest that we just wrapped up, uh, you had to finish in the top three in a four-week period, and then all the people who did that got to have this one-game playoff last Friday for all the marbles. And as it turns out, I won all the marbles, but you had the most aggregate. If you aggregated all the points, you would have won the competition. Is that not right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I had the most, uh, myself and my Masters Ball partner, Brian Walton, we kind of had a, a private, you know, non-spoken competition between the two of us because we were battling. And actually, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus was, uh, and Adam Ronis, they were all sort of uh, there for each week flipping. You know, if we went one more week, one of these other guys may have had more points than I did. But at the end of the actual competition, I had the most points. Uh, and part of it's just a perfect attendance record where I didn't miss any weeks. Because if you, you, know, you miss a week, you, you don't get credit. So part of it is just having played every week. But I think it also shows that, you know, there's some level, you know, I, I know a little bit what I'm doing. I actually had two tickets into the uh, into the to the finals. I came in the top three, two of the two of the weeks. But to sort of speak to the point, I never actually won a week. I, I finished in the top uh, three a couple of times. Uh, top 10 quite often but there wasn't a single week where I had the most points for that week uh, and that just that just speaks to the the, the longer consistency method of it um, you know if we had gave away you know ranked us on how well we did each week as opposed to total points I wouldn't have been the overall champion or I, well, I wasn't the overall champion I wouldn't have been the champion just of the season long thing either um, so, but yeah, as you mentioned, and I actually wrote about this when I when, and talked about this, is one of the great reasons for this whole season-long thing is even in our season-long 
uh, you know, traditional leagues. If if you if you lost, I don't know, uh, Kyle Schwarber or AJ Pollock or or even now Clayton Kershaw, your teams are you know we're hurt and. Sure, you can pick up free agents and that sort of thing, but they're nowhere near of the same quality. But you know, so in, in DFS, if you if you played a night and whoever your pitcher got scratched or your hitter got uh, thrown out or whatever, you know, you so what? You you get to come back the next day. So in a, in a way, I, the 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 season long DFS, you know, flushes out some of the stuff that involved even in you know the luck involved in a season long game. So uh, for that reason, and just the, uh, I do think there is some uh, short sample analysis that can be done to improve your chances in a particular night, and and I think that really feeds into the new stats. And I know you guys have been talking about that on the last several podcasts. Maybe not directly for DFS, but some of the stuff that you talked about the past several weeks, as far as uh, improvements in data collection and short sample analysis, I think is directly applicable to uh, setting a better lineup. Our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey says that daily fantasy to him is the fairest form of competition there is because of exactly what you say. In a, in a traditional season-long league, uh, you lost, uh, you lost um, A.J. Pollock in, in Tout Wars on, before the season started because the draft took place a week or so before the, the season started. You lose potentially one of your top players before he even gets to step on the field, and that really hamstrings your ability to, to compete. As it turns out, you did all right anyway. But had that been a daily league, you would have lost that night, of course, because you'd have spent some big money on A.J. Pollock. But on the next night or the next time that the competition uh, gets going, you're going to just not pick A.J. Pollock and pick somebody else. And it allows you to be quite more responsive to what's going on in the field in real baseball. Yeah, not only that, uh, you can make the argument, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to think of a player sort of off the top of my head here. Um, everybody I'm thinking of is, is now out for the season. I, you know, a guy... If you had picked up uh, Elmedes Diaz or or, or somebody, or you know, I'll even talk about the, the, the tout team that, that that's doing well. Um, you know, Hierenio Suarez, who's having a much better year than maybe people expected. So not only can you get unlucky, but some of your seasonal teams, uh, you're winning because you. I don't want to say got lucky because oftentimes there was a reason why you pick, but there's players that exceed their expectations all the time, and you can't take total credit for Adam Duvall. You can't take total credit for uh, I don't know J.A. Happ, for instance. So hey, this hey, way, hey. you know, on a sing- in a single night in DFS, you have a guy that gets two homers that normally doesn't you know normally strikes out twice okay you did great that night that's not going to happen every single night so not only do you get to cover up for the injuries but you don't get a full season's benefit again not from getting lucky but from just you know getting a player that uh you know what it is getting lucky when you choose a player that way outperforms if he way outperforms everybody's expectations i think it'd be wrong not to say that you got a little bit lucky by choosing that player I do have Jay Happ in my uh, Tout American League team, and he's been terrific, and I got him for four bucks. And uh, again, I, I agree with you. It wasn't luck per se. I had him on my list. Right. I, th- I had him as a guy who could really outperform this year based on what I saw in the last little while. Uh, I thought maybe he was going to be good and that I'd get him at a bargain, but I did not expect him to end up being like a $25, $26 player, closing in on 20 wins, sub three ERA, right around three. He's had a fantastic year, a lot of strikeouts even. And, and I am benefiting disproportionately from having, having had that $4 end game play on J Hap. 
which I wouldn't get if I had to pick him every single night or every time he started because then I'm I'm anteing up at a new price that more reflects where he is at that moment. Right, right. Earlier in the week, Matt Whistler had a uh, great DFS night. So are you going to, you know, if you chose Matt Whistler, are you going to choose that the Matt Whistler every single night correctly? No, once in a while you're going to get it, and once in a while it's going to turn into a guy that did not pitch so well. So, uh, you know, in that over the course of a season in DFS, and similar, you know, the other, you know, in, in traditional t- too, you you got Jay Happ, and you probably spent twenty bucks for a guy that ended up performing five or six bucks, and it's not because you made a bad pick. I mean, if, you know, it's just that the player didn't perform up to his expectations, and hopefully those things even out over the over the course of a of a season in in traditional fantasy. But I, I just think that the uh, I don't know. I, 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 as I wrote in my piece, I wrote it a year ago for Fantasy Alarm. If you know there was no such thing as fantasy baseball, and the first iteration was, hey, we're going to choose lineups on a daily basis and 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 accumulate points. I think people are going, oh, cool, that is such a great idea. So I think you know, there's no reason why you can't have it sort of the next generation of the game either, and it helps the sites too, because I know this not just for Tout Daily, but I sort of we do a, a competition like this for one of the other sites I work for, and you, you set the lineup in for your internal private competition. But then you know, what what if that lineup is really really good? I always click it into a one of their standard competitions too, and I'm I happy to say that I haven't had a re re re. Uh, not reinvest, but re uh, put more money into my account. So I played the whole season <laughs> on that on that same twenty five dollars. So it uh, hasn't hurt me, hasn't helped me. But you know, what if? What if one of the you know I still have another thirty days? What if that lineup hits? So uh, I just want to get through the whole thirty days without having to put another twenty five dollars on my account. But uh, it does. Uh, with a point being, if we do have one of these leagues, and you know, maybe we have a first pitch Arizona challenge league. You know, I'll bet you some of the people double up their lineup and, and put it into one of the site standard competitions, and it's a win-win for the site because they get that many more lineups into their, you know, the regular daily contest that they wouldn't have had if they weren't having these leagues. Well, I think it's a terrific idea because, uh, as you said before, it combines the best of both worlds. It eliminates a lot of the weaknesses of both formats by reducing luck in both, as you mentioned, and it uh, seems to be a pretty good test of your ability to follow the game day-to-day. I mean, really, in a traditional league or traditional rotisserie league, I mean, you study like heck to get your draft right, and then after that, you kind of just keep an eye on the transaction wire and make sure your players are active. But it's it's fairly passive from that point on, not completely, but it's nowhere near as active as looking at uh, a daily fantasy lineup and trying to f- assess right-handed versus left-handers, what's this guy's ability to hit right-handers versus left-handers, all of those considerations that go into forming a daily lineup. It's like you get to draft your team, what, 70 times a year or however many times you guys agree to play. Yeah, I, I guarantee the people that play DFS and play traditional were a lot more aware of a guy like Ryan Shrimp than those who just play traditional because came out of nowhere, hit a couple home runs, and bing, bang, boom, he's a sort of a DFS darling. And, of course, you know, I'm not saying people in traditional leagues didn't don't follow and didn't know who he was, but they're, they're, it is, you're right. It, during the, I don't want to say it gives you more of a reason to pay attention during the week because most of us are baseball fans and we watch the games whether we're playing fantasy or not. But it has helped me, uh, you know, when I, when I go to do my – when I go to do my weekly updated projections, 
I'm no longer just saying shrimp and going and just doing it strictly on the numbers because the guy hit a home run for me on the, the Tuesday previous. Uh, I've already done a little bit more legwork into it and maybe, you know, paid more attention to the projection because, I you know, the guy's going to stay. So, yeah, you're, it, does, it gives you a lot more focus midweek. And for me, it's actually it's actually helped me on my uh, free agency when I do NFBC or, or Tout Wars or Labor. It's actually helped me with my free agency because I've already kind of done a lot of the legwork on these players by the time I have to do my fab over the weekend. And we should say that the uh, Tout Daily Championship was organized for us by Real Time Sports. Yep. Uh, RTSports.com? It's RTSports.com. It's a great little site. And if you don't want to support some of the bigger guys, they, uh, they do have a great little game out there. They'll be starting to do football, too, and there's baseball for the rest of the month. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. It was fun. Yep. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola. And, Todd, uh, you regularly write at Rotowire a column called The Z-Files, or here in Canada, The Z-Files. And in your most recent one, you're discussing category math, you call it, as it affects hitting categories. Before we get into the details, what do you mean by category math? Yeah, it's nothing new. Uh, it just I decided to come up with a goofy little name, uh, just to call it. It's what you know. It, it's the plus minus. It's it's the accounting we all do. We've all talked about it. I can gain four points in steals. I can gain three points in RBIs. I can lose two points here. Okay, if this happens, I can gain a total of four points. Or if I trade for this guy, uh, you know, I lose here. You know, so I just instead of sort of being vague about it, if I can coin the term category math. There'd probably be 100 people out there that follow me that know what I'm talking about whenever I say category math. So uh, that's all it really is. We've talked about it before. Um, it's just the, uh, trying to, the, the net points you can gain or lose by making trades and transactions. And you've written about this before, and we've talked about it before, so we don't have to really get into it. But there's a really common misconception out there that you can you can move a lot in the counting categories and not so much in the ratio categories. And it's pretty easy to make an argument that, in fact, it's the other way around. Right. And uh, I wrote about it two weeks ago on Rotowire and um, attached a little Excel tool which you can actually plug in your ratios and your target ratios and tells you what you need to do so you can sort of visually see, hey, wait, I, that's, I can do that. My team can get that ERA over the next month. It, it, you know, and, and the other idea being in that uh, there's just so much tightly more, they're more tightly bunched. Ratio categories are more tightly bunched. And uh, the other, the bigger aspect of it is teams can have a poor night pitching. Maybe maybe you're out there chasing uh, your, your your opponents out there chasing wins and strikeouts because his category math says I can gain five points in wins and strikeouts, but I'm going to give away a point in ERA and I give give away a point in WHIP. You know what? Maybe those points are to you, and so he's coming back to you. And either you need to just stay steady or, or or gain a little bit, do a little bit better in the ratios yourself, and you can get that point. And if you just need proof positive, the majority of the scoring sites now out there. Uh, show you either on a daily or weekly basis the change in categories, the plus minus uh, for each of the categories. And I promise you, I mean, maybe if you have one league, it may not be. But if you're in several leagues or have access to several leagues, uh, even the last day of the season, you're going to see more movement in the ratios than you are in the counting stats. So the, the point being, don't just categorically dismiss them. I'll, I'll listen to the radio. I'll go to forums. I'll go to boards. And someone will say, I need advice on my team. And the advice will be, all right, well, you're stuck, you're stuck where you are in ERA, uh, so therefore do this. Well, maybe you are, depending upon the distribution, but it's not, it's not categorically the case. You can still move in ratios. 
I did some math myself uh, before this call, Todd, and I looked at my own Tout Wars team. It has we just under 5,300 at-bats to date, 5,280, I think, and uh, 1,400 and some hits for a 270 batting average. We don't use batting average, but most people do, so that's what I, right. that's what I used. And if my team for September has 1,000 more at-bats, which is about, the, about how many I can expect, if they go 300 for 1,000, a 300 batting average, my batting average is going to jump five points from 270 to 275. And anybody who plays this game for a long time knows five points in the batting average category is a really big jump. It can be, you know, the, you plug in the numbers, depending on who you have, th- things can be done. And, and how much, if some of those teams come back to you, maybe you don't need all five points, so... But they're there for the taking is my right. point. And on the ERA side, I'm at uh, 315. And if I get a 270 ERA for September, and, you know, even the normal variation could get me that, I'll, I'll drop seven points in ERA from 315 to 308. So don't give up on the, on, the, uh, on the ratio categories to our listeners is the message here. But let's talk about those counting stats because it is a horse of a different color. Can you give us an example of the category math that you came up with for stolen bases? Yeah, so what I did, and the idea of this piece was, uh, when you do the math, when you you want to be real, uh, you know, realistic in your expectations and what can possibly happen. So you don't, you know, that you want to be as objective as possible. So one of the best ways to to do that is to sort of have a framework, have a boundary. So I just took a look at the the leaders in the different counting stat categories for this year for each for each month. It was just an arbitrary deadline of one month. Uh, it wasn't sort of a rolling 30-day thing, which may have <laughs> changed the numbers a bit. But you know, I, my, my, my filter was one month, so we did it that way. And found that there were more repeat uh, leaders in stolen bases than there were in home runs. I think there, there weren't any repeat players that, 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 that were in the top two in home runs for the previous five months, whereas there were several repeat stolen base guys. And one of the things, you know, when I give advice and when I see other people give advice, they'll say, all right, I'm behind eight steals, but I've got Rajay Davis. Well, you know what? You, you're, you're behind eight steals and you, you already had Rajay Davis. You can't say, you know, Rajay Davis is, is, is going to win me because he steals a lot. You need something other than Rajay Davis. And the point that I was making was there's more of a chance... You know, you, you want to do things organically, right? You want to just have the uh, make a move to have a bigger home run hitter in your lineup than, than you had before. But as far as things just happen, there's more of a chance of a decent power hitter having a really, really good month than a decent stolen base guy coming out of nowhere and leading league in steals. So you just sort of have to, you know, sort of keep that in your back of your mind that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot better chance that Scott Skebler goes out and hits 10 or 11 home runs this month than there is of of, of some, you know, middle of, you know, guy that steals a couple, you know, than, than Paul Goldschmidt stealing 12 bases. There's better, it's just, that's the nature of the category. Um, so, on the other hand, you also, you, if you can still make trades for whatever reason in your leagues, you can, you, you can pretty much write down Billy Hamilton for 12 or 13 steals, if not more. You can write down Jonathan Falar for, for 10 or 11 steals, if not more. So you can trade for them, and, and I don't want to say be guaranteed, but be pretty safe in in getting those steals. You really can't trade for Mark Trumbo expecting nine homers or trade for 
you know, uh, Nolan Arenado. Well, actually, Arenado you probably could. And Chris Snyder, they're just so Chris Bryant, they're just so good. But even them, you can't trade for them and say, all right, there's nine homers. We don't know. It could be five. It could be you know, it could be eleven. But you're pretty sure you're going to get those steals from Hamilton and Villar and and at this point, uh, D Gordon as well. They're just uh, the top players tend to perform each month at that top level. I thought it was interesting that you made the point that it is easier to make up ground in home runs because the stolen bases are so concentrated and because there's so many more guys who can hit home runs and therefore might have a few more home runs than usual, that which is not going to happen in stolen bases. And that leads to your advice to be cautious about making a roster change to chase a single category. So suppose I think I can make up ground in home runs and I get re- really aggressive about chasing home runs. What's my problem? Yeah, it, it, this and I, you know, I'm not. I don't know if this is just something that that's cool or if it's actually actionable because I didn't know this before I did the math. And that's the leaders in RBIs each month were were higher. They had a higher total than the leaders in runs. So be, before thinking about it, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, doing it. Okay, anybody who plays rotisserie knows that their team, not maybe maybe not their team, depending on the construct, but there's more often than not. The runs category, the leader in runs has more runs than a leader in RBIs. Uh, 95% of, of runs have an RBI, but there's that 5% that scored on an error or on a double play or, or you just don't happen to get the RBI. And that translates to standing. So I kind of thought, you know, without really thinking it through, that would translate to the leaders of the month. But it wasn't the case. And then I thought about it through. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Runs are a more balanced category. Everybody gets runs. Um, what do you need to do to have a big RBI month? Well, you need to hit really well. Probably helps if you have a few homers in there. And you got to be on a team that have had other guys get on base. So to me, when you're sort of doing the plus minus, there's maybe better chance of making up the ground in RBIs, especially if you're going for homers, but be careful what you're doing in the runs. The key for runs is at bats. The key for runs is keeping players in your lineup. You, they they need to be in they need to be in lineup to do anything. But runs is the category that I'll bet you correlates best to uh, to team at bats. If you take every single league and run a correlation between at bats and runs, I'll bet the correlation between categories is highest for runs. So if you know if if uh, if you, you know, I'm at in an NFBC league, I actually have to sit Jonathan Villar and put Chase Utley in there because I need more power than speed. But I, how is that going to be for my runs category? Where I am in the distribution, it didn't matter. Uh, the, the, the couple extra runs that I may lose from Villar to Utley isn't going to matter in this particular league. But in some other leagues, it will. And we talk about category math all the time. At the end of the day, it matters where you are within your particular league. I can look at average standings all day long, and there's a pretty good chance that your league is similar because otherwise the average standings wouldn't be that way. But each league is unique, and you know we could say that middle of the pack is one of your beef for steals because that's where the tightest. Well, your league could have a tight race at the top. It just each each league is different. That's right. The tendency is for the for the bunching to take place in the middle with a couple of outliers high and low, but it's certainly not a, an ironclad rule. And the only advice I think either of us can give anybody who's looking at this is take a look at where you are in the category, figure out whether the guy in front of you is catchable, the guy in front of him is catchable, take a look at their rosters. Maybe the guy in front of you had a had a stolen base lead on you but has since traded Billy Hamilton. So his 
likelihood to, to keep moving at the same pace is greatly reduced, maybe increases your chances of getting him. Conversely, if he just acquired Billy Hamilton, you're not, you're never, you're never going to catch him. And you have to be really realistic about that. And, uh, just be aware of where you are and where the opportunities lie rather than just thinking, uh, and this is something that poor rotisserie players do all the time, I'm going to trade to get Paul Goldschmidt because he's really good. And you look at it and go, yeah, but Paul Goldschmidt in this situation isn't going to help you. He's a poor example because he helps practically across the board, but you certainly wouldn't want to trade uh, you know, a, a top starting pitcher for him if that's where your points were just to say, hey, I got Paul Goldschmidt and all he did was move me up without moving me into new points. Right, and I kind of you know, hinted at the example before, my NFPC league. Um, it literally helped my team to went out and fab Chase Utley. And actually, you know what? It turned out that I was able to put Brandon Phillips in the bench. But I, uh, I may actually end up having to put Brandon Phillips in the lineup and sit Jonathan Villar. Uh, well, I want to sit Jose Altuve because he hits a couple home runs too. But if I need power and I don't need speed, I can't make trades in that league. So it's not about talent or value or where you are in a player raider. It's all about categories at this point, and Chase Utley and Coors Field had a better chance of hitting a home run for me than either Phillips or Villar this week, so that's where it's at. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN. And uh, Todd, since we're talking about tactics anyway, you also have a column every week at Masters Ball called You Look Fabulous, F-A-A-B, and uh, that's where you analyze the fab moves that are made in some of the experts' leagues, Tout and Labor, and uh, you made some observations about tactics in your most recent column I thought were really interesting, starting with our friend Lore Michaels in the Tout American League League. He grabbed Ubaldo Jimenez, which seems suicidal on its face, but... Again, doing some category math, he thought he could get points and strikeouts, and you said not only that, but the schedule could help. Right, and this, you know, we've talked a little before about how DFS helps, and uh, you just you're aware of some of the teams that give uh, pitchers high strikeout potential. And this week, it's a single start against Toronto, and you know, Toronto's a, a you know a slugging team, but they do offer some upside strikeout potential. But next week's even better. He's got Tampa Bay, who strike out a lot against right-handed pitching. And Detroit, who very similar to, to Toronto, uh, there's a lot of power in the game, but there's a lot of swing and miss in their game as well. All three of those teams have a strikeout percent with, with, against right-handed pitching above league average. So, um, you know, I don't, you know <laughs> we, we know Lar. I don't know if he actually just saw Ubaldo Jimenez and he strikes guys out, or if he actually went ahead and looked at the schedule. Uh, Lar's more of kind of the touch and field type player wouldn't be surprised if he did it either way doesn't really matter it's a it's a guy that he wants kind of i mean i don't want to spend too long on this but it does kind of bring me into a one of the things i want to look at uh and especially for dfs but also in this sort of situation here we kind of just kind of made we kind of made the sort of the blanket statement obaldo is facing teams that strike out a lot therefore he should strike out more people i don't know that though i don't know if a pitcher's strikeout, so what's the leading, what what sort of pushes and what pulls? Is a guy who strikes out eight per game facing a team that strikes it a lot more, does that eight go up? Or does he, or does his strikeout rate just sort of pick, you know, you know, uh, dovetail along with the team? So especially when I sort of adjust on a daily basis for DFS, my expectations, I kind of want to know, you know, Max Scherzer strikes out a ton of guys. Is he going to strike out more when he faces a team? that strikes out a lot or is, is one of the, you know, so I, if I'm doing right now, it's just, I do it linearly and, and I just assume that, 
you know, set up by an index, and the pitcher's strikeout rate goes up and down versus the team. I'm not sure if the effect is linear on the on the pitcher's strikeout rate. Having said that, I would still take Jimenez because he's taking, he's you know, without further research, he is straight going against teams that strike out more than 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 average. In your own tout National League league, you had a roster decision to make when A.J. Pollock came back, and the cost to you of activating him was something you really had to think about. What were those issues? Because it seems like, A.J. Pollock's back, I must activate him. But you didn't do it right away. Uh, what were you thinking about? How did you handle it, and how did it work out? Well, actually, the, yeah, real quick, you have to, have to explain a little bit of a rule in that if a player comes back midweek uh, off the DL or off the minors, tout wars, we're allowed to activate him with the, uh, the there's two catches. A, he had to have been on the transaction report the day before, so you're not going to get his first game back. And B, if you're activating him from the DL or the minors, you need to release a player. So, you know, I the release wasn't a huge deal. Matt Joyce, Jeremy Heselbaker, it's an upgrade. Uh, I don't mind that. But I kind of try to get too cute because when I first read about Pollock, they said he's going to play two of every three games. So we played the Friday night. He got back. I couldn't get that game regardless because I, uh, you know, I, I can't activate him till Saturday. So do I activate him on Saturday or not? Well, he's going to play two of the three. In my mind, he's going to play one of the next two games. So I, I take a look at the lineups and who my who my guys are facing, uh, Hazel Baker and Joyce, and they both were going to be in the lineup against a, a weaker right-handed pitcher. And so I, I, I took the chance that, that Pollock wasn't going to play that Saturday. They're not going to play in the day game after a night game. And, of course, A.J. Pollock played that game. And uh, so, therefore, now I'm playing more mind games with myself. On Sunday, I already played two in a row. He's not going to play on Sunday. So I didn't even bother looking. I didn't activate him. And uh, on Saturday was a wash. He went 0 for 3, and the other two guys went 0 for 4, so whatever. But on Sunday, he went 3 for 5 with a couple of runs, I believe. And the guys I left in there did, either didn't play or didn't do very well. So by, by not only getting lazy, but by not being diligent on Sunday morning and, and getting him in there and dropping one of those two guys, I lost a 3 for 5 out of Pollock, which could hurt me in, in on base at the end of the season. We'll have to see how, how close the categories are. And I'm in a, in a race where every single, not just point, but every half point counts in rotisserie. Right now I have a half a point lead over our colleague Derek Cardi. So uh, now the week before that, um, I had a guy that got hurt, and I had Jose Peraza on my bench. And even though Peraza was still in the minors at the time, there was a better chance of him getting called up. I think it was a couple weeks ago. So I had a hurt guy, and I brought Peraza up, and he just sat in my lineup, um, and he actually ended up getting called up. And I actually got his stats that first game back, because this is a different thing. There's also a tell rules where it says if a guy gets hurt or gets sent to the minors, you can send him down the next day. Uh, so I was able to get Peraza in my lineup uh, and got his first game stats. This is, you know, a lot of people do this. It's just it's it's a smart thing to do. You know, doesn't can't have the, the the guy that's in the DL obviously can't help you. Why don't you bring a guy up that's in the minors? You know, the, the, on the chance he gets called up. So these two things probably washed themselves out. But I did lose a, a three for five in Pollock. But I do get to keep both Hazel Baker and Joyce on my reserve, and was able to drop, uh, I don't, Dario Alvarez, some pitcher who I didn't really, really didn't need anymore. But I'll let you know on October second if I needed that three for five or not. 
Well, I hope for your sake you didn't, because uh, it'll uh, it'll bug you for a year, probably. <laughs> uh, you mentioned your first place in the league with Derek Carty nipping at your heels. He's going to get Clayton Kershaw back shortly. Uh, he's already leading in ERA and WHIP, so you have no worries there, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't likely he was going to be caught, and he's third from the bottom in strikeouts. Can Kershaw get enough strikeouts to push Derek Carty past you? See, so, yeah, here here here's the old category math. And uh, I don't know if, if Kershaw can, but and you did mention that he has an, a lead in ERA and a lead in WHIP. But the reason being is he didn't, he was, I don't want to say nervous about, but he didn't just sort of stream in arbitrary starters in an effort to get the, uh, the wins and the strikeouts. So if having Kershaw back, what it may do for Derek is he may, he may have now the confidence to go with some lesser starting pitchers and try to get back some of those wins. So Kershaw alone can't do it, but the the, the re-support that he adds to the ratios could enable Derek to start going with some lesser starters. I mean, I, what I I don't you know I almost I don't want to say don't care, but I need my guys to stop getting hurt. I've lost they you know these names these they're not the greatest names in the world, but in an NL only you know they they matter. I've lost William Chen and recently David Phelps and Adam Conley. For some reason I was into the the Marlins I don't know why, but um and had lost John Lackey for a week or two. So all right they're not the greatest names, but I, I I'd have a little bit more of a cushion in a couple of these categories had those guys not been hurt over the past several weeks. But you know what? I, one of the reasons I'm contending where I am is because I was relatively injury free other than AJ Pollock throughout the course of the season, you know, over the course of the year, these things happen. And I'm just, you know, over the course of the 180 game schedule, we all have the same injuries. My just, mine just maybe happen to occur now. Uh, but uh, if I get some of these guys back, you know, it'll balance Derek getting, Kershaw back, and uh, it should be a nice little fun race going down the stretch. In a Rotowire Z Files column titled Opportunity, 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 you said that late in the season we need to reverse the Ron Chandler advice, which is to buy skills and not roles, and buy roles rather than skills. Why did you say that? Now, this is uh, sort of specifically if you're trying to make up ground, I mean, it's, everything's contextual. If you're replacing a guy and maybe you're leading and you just you, you don't you just want to stay status quo, maybe you take the guy with the with the it's it's floor versus ceiling, so you take the guy with the floor. But if you're trying to make up ground, and and, and a certain player is going to play seven days a week or six days a week, and maybe a better player, that platoon player is only going to play four or five days a week, but I'm looking to make up ground. I want a guy, I want the opportunity. I want the I want the guy that's going to be get more plate appearances, get more innings, give me more of a chances. Because as I sort of showed this current week, as far as leading the pack in different categories go, a lot can happen in, in one month. The uh, over the course of a season, the better player is going to have uh, better stats. But in a four-week slice, there the variation, the variance over uh, you know a, a good player and a, and a lesser player. There's going to be some overlap in a, in a four week, and as long as there's some overlap, as long as there's a chance that my lesser player has a better four weeks than the better player, and he's going to be playing more, I need those points. You know, if if, if both players do what they're supposed to do, I'm not going to win. I need the guy to do better. So it's 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 sort of. I mean, March I'm drafting the guy with the better skill because that usually portends to more opportunity, but. And even as hard as opportunity is to predict in September, now that rosters have expanded, um, there are certain instances where I'm going to want 
just to have more time to the plate, to give me more chances. He just say it, more chances to get lucky. You made an interesting point in the column also regarding call-ups because, uh, of course, in September, especially for teams that are out of the running, there's going to be some guys who call, get called up and start taking some playing time away, so you need to be aware of that. But you also had another point about the call-ups, and that is minor league playoffs. Explain wh- why that's important. Yeah, it depends. There's some teams, you know, for instance, the uh, the Red Sox right now don't care. Uh, their goal is to win the World Series. They're calling up Yohan Mankata, uh, uh so even though Pawtucket may or may not be in, the, I have to remember if they're in the playoffs, they don't care. There are other teams that uh, I think San Diego comes to mind, where they're they don't they don't have the major league team does, team doesn't have playoff aspirations, but the minor league team does. So if you're waiting for Manuel Margot or or Hunter Renfro to come up, you probably won't see the transaction listing tomorrow that they were called up on September 1st. Well, and the fact that Margot has been off and on hurt. But the point being, some teams may feel that, you know, a championship is a championship, right? You you were, you were probably as happy Friday night when you took down the tout thing as, as our friend Dave Potts was when he won a William Bucks. I mean, unto, to that moment, a championship is a championship. You know, can you, yeah. get, can, you be, can you be happier? I don't know. So... You know, Triple A playoffs—it's a championship. So I think they want these guys to get the experience. So we may not see some players. A guy I'm interested in mentioned Tout Wars is Drew Hutchinson, Drew Hutchinson, and I think that I, if I recall correctly, the Pirates team that he's on, Triple A affiliate, is not in the playoff hunt. So I'm sort of kind of crossing my fingers that. Pittsburgh calls up Hutchinson because he would be a nice little help when I need some of these starting pitchings that I just talked about. So you can sort of, especially if you have your guy on your minor league roster, on your reserve roster, check out and go to minorleaguebaseball.com or or, the, or MLB.com to the minor league section, and they have the standings there, and they're telling you who's in the playoffs. And just plan on having your minor leaguer sit for the next couple of weeks. Now, the playoffs have to end by, I think, September 13th. Uh, probably because it's written in the collective bargaining that these teams can <laughs> can call these guys up. But uh, so uh, it, it's a week or two, but sometimes that's important. And just for the record, I would have been happier to win the million bucks. <laughs> yeah, that may have been a poor example, but I mean, listen, we, we've won we won softball championships and and stuff, and I mean, you, you feel pretty darn happy. So I I, I don't know. I, I think that you could. Uh, I think that you know a championship's a championship, and it, if in in the moment it feels really, really good. You are correct, and uh, Todd, I'm interested in your opinion about Gary Sanchez of New York. They call him the Sanchez now in Yankee Land, and uh, everybody's really excited about him. When you looked at the Tout mixed head-to-head competition where he was just picked up, you asked if Gary Sanchez could possibly win the Rookie of the Year for the American League this year, despite having spent a lot less time in the big leagues than Michael Fulmer, Nomar Mazzara, maybe even Edwin Diaz out in Seattle. What's the argument that uh, the Sanchez deserves the Rookie of the Year? Well, hitting 20 homers would, would, would certainly put him in the picture. Um, it, it, I, I mean, I, I'm not the first one. I think, this, I think it's being discussed in the HQ forums. It's being discussed on Twitter. It's being discussed everywhere. And it's just it's just a remarkable story. We saw we saw Sanchez at the AFL last year, and quite frankly, number us a number of us were actually I don't want to even say surprised. We were shocked he didn't break camp with the club, that he didn't break camp with the Yankees that they sent him down. Uh, he looked that good, not just hitting, but he looked pretty good defensively too. So you know if, if the guy you know I, I don't know it, to me 
what's the difference between 18 and 20? Nothing, really, except for whatever reason, 20 kind of gets that high. You know, you get the neon lights. So if he gets 20, he's it's probably a kind of, a, I don't want to say an excuse, but more attention is paid, and maybe he does get the rookie of the year because the, uh, whoever votes for him can say, look, he got 20 homers, as opposed to saying, look, he got 18 homers. For whatever reason, it's just got that, that more of an alert to it. And feeding back into what I was saying as far as monthly expectations, the someone and he actually did it in August, but someone's going to hit nine or ten homers in September, maybe even eleven, because you got a couple extra days, and that puts him at that twenty mark if he's the guy that does it. So, you know, if he gets twenty homers, you know, forget forget the fact he did it in. Maybe it's even better than he did it in so few games. You know, the numbers are the numbers. Judge the numbers. Don't you know? I've even heard people say, well, you know, to get that many homers in such a short period of time, he was lucky. Well, he was, but. You know what? Let let me worry about that. Let Ray Murphy worry about that when we do projections next year. The guy hit 20 homers. Give him credit. And uh, I say that, and you know, we talk about pitching Cy Young at the end of the year. I'm going to talk about a guy being lucky or unlucky uh, as far as why he should or shouldn't get the award. But uh, still, you know, 20 homers is 20 homers. So we'll uh, if he gets it, I'm not I don't I'm not into awards very much anyway. But I'm not, I'm certainly not going to disparage anybody who votes for him. If he, I wouldn't disparage if he hit 18 and they voted for him. But uh, to me, it's kind of a nice, I don't know, highlighted neon light number that if he gets, it's going to make an interesting discussion. You raised another interesting notion on the topic. If Sanchez were to win the Rookie of the Year this year, he could also be Rookie of the Year next year. How does that work? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I didn't discover this. I read it on Twitter and kind of did a little reading about it because it's fascinating. Yeah, the uh, the rule and there's nothing in the rules that says you can't. The 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 rules being 130 plate appearances or 45 days active on the roster. Keeping in mind that once actually as of today, as of uh, earlier this week, as of the September 1st, that the clock stops ticking and that any games you accrue. Uh, the, it counts for, I, I believe it counts for the arbitration and such, but it doesn't count for the Rookie of the Year eligibility. Um, so Yuan Makata's no, games he gets don't count towards Rookie of the Year eligibility uh, when he comes up. And he's going to fall below the threshold. That's how good he's been. He's, he hasn't been in the roster 45 days, and he hasn't had 130 plate appearances. So in theory, he's going to qualify again next year. So, heck, the guy could, uh, you know, he can theory, on paper anyway, win it two years in a row, which... Well, then, uh, you know how things go. They're probably therefore will be a rule change because <laughs> that's what most 99% of rule changes are to react to something that occurred that they didn't think of. But still, the point being, uh, that would be kind of neat. And, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, air quotes on paper, it's possible that Gary Sanchez is the rookie of the year. There's a trivia question down the road. Yeah, and uh, I was just thinking when you said that thing about rule changes are always in reaction to something that happened that nobody thought of, and the rule change affects nothing because that thing never happens again. It's so yeah. unusual that, that you know it's like making a rule against you know a meteor striking your neighbor on the golf course. And okay, yeah, c- congratulations. <laughs> the rule seems to have prevented it from happening a second time, but it's uh, it was a long shot in the first place. Uh, irrespective of the awards, talking rookie of the year. Where, as a projections uh, guy, do you think you'll be slotting Gary Sanchez next year among catchers in mixed league drafts? Yeah, now I think I think at this point he's got I think 16 games. I have to keep in mind he did DH. So what for whatever reason, let's say he nicks his nicks his finger or whatever, and he DHs the rest of the year, he may not have catcher. 
but that's not your point. You want to know where I'm putting him amongst catchers. Just you know, keep a keep an eye out. The day he gets his 20th game, there's going to be a bunch of people that pump their fist. You know, I still think you got to put Posey above him, and I still think you're going to put Jonathan Lacroix above him, especially if he stays in Texas in that lineup. After that, I think it's you know, does Schwarber come back? Does he? Uh, does he qualify a catcher? I think at this, and like I mentioned, it's not just because he had 20 homers. We all saw this guy in the fall, and you can't judge off of, you know, a two-week stretch that you see him in the Arizona Fall League. But I think he backed it up in the minors, and he backed it up here. The guy can hit, and catching is such a, uh, a cesspool now. I, uh, top five for sure. I don't know if he'll be my number three. Going through things quickly, you got you know, J- you know Jacob Realmuto, especially if he steals bases. There are some guys that uh, uh, that are okay for the catchers, but uh, man, I don't know why he wouldn't be top five at this in the mixed league, top five at this point. I thought top five too, not so much because of what he's done, and of course we have to temper those expectations because this just could have been a hot streak, a guy hitting you know eleven home runs and and having fifteen the next year just because things even out, catching's hard, it's physically wearing and all that kind of stuff. Although he's been catching in the minor league, so it's not like he's been uh, you know having a suntan between at bats all year. But yeah, I think top five is pretty reasonable. I don't know where I'd put him overall, but uh, certainly he's a first tier catcher. Uh, finally, Todd, before we let you go, in the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, a poster who goes by the handle A-Gellin or A-Gellin, A-G-E-L-L-I-N, I don't know how to pronounce it, suggested a league he would like to start using all ratio categories and no counting stats. And I think this is interesting based on what we were talking about earlier because his argument is that the gaps in counting categories often become too big by September and can't be overcome, which makes the race less fun. He proposed a 3 by 3 league using batting average, on-base, and slugging for hitters, and ERA, whip, and dominance, K-9, for pitchers. Before we go on to any details, what are your thoughts about a league where only ratio categories, no counting categories? Uh, I don't mind it. I mean, I, there, you know, I, I, I read it. I didn't participate in the uh, in the thread. It, it ties back into a thought that I had from the, the, the Tout Wars uh, mixed league, and I don't, I don't mind it on paper, and I don't mind that the player pool that you choose particular players out of the player pool to sort of take advantage of the categories. But I don't like it when uh, an entire segment of the player pool is completely excluded. And uh, in the tout mixed, some teams realize that it, it tilted so much towards the ratio categories that they didn't really care about not the top starters are the top starters, but they didn't go after the sort of the second and third tier starting pitching. So I I I don't mind that idea, but I don't want to. I want you to be smart about who you take, but I don't want to exclude the middle pitchers. So I would want to have a a roster requirement of I don't know five starting pitchers, two relievers. And then two, you know, can be either or four, three, and two. I would want to constrain it so that there was an entire segment of the uh, of, of of the inventory that you couldn't just avoid. Now, to be fair, I want to do this in what we're doing now because right now, uh, to me, the the middle relievers are are being excluded, and if you force teams to take. Uh, you know, six, two, and you know, six, one, and two, or whatever. Uh, you 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 can have the middle relievers be a little bit more valuable in the game that we play now. So I'm not against changing up our current 
league, uh, traditional leagues, to assign position to pitching like we assign it to the position players. So it's not just I'm saying it for that. That would be the only thing. It's a fine idea. I, uh, um, uh, you, you just don't want to have the number of innings or number of it. Well, number number of it batch is still. It probably wouldn't affect hitting too much, but you don't want to play too many games with the pitching. Uh, to make it just into a, you know, I'm not going to project this middle reliever. I'm just going to take him because I know he's going to be better than uh, Mike Pelfrey is going to be for my team. Yeah, especially if you have uh, strikeout percentage or or dominance or something like that as a category because a lot of those middle relievers have fantastic strikeout per nine rates or strikeout percentage rates despite the fact that they're only pitching or maybe because of the fact they're only pitching 60 innings a year and so they can really go out there and, and just throw as hard as they can for a brief period two, three times a week. It, it does change how you look at the game. I wondered if you could just say, look, you got to have 1,000 innings, you got to have 6,000 at-bats. There, there you go. That's the other way. I yep. didn't like the overlap, Todd, between batting average and on-base percentage because obviously batting average is a huge part of on-base percentage, and even slugging has components that are common to both those things, and it seemed like the overlap would cause you to overvalue certain kinds of players and undervalue all the others. I suggested in the thread having on-base percentage because that's a particular kind of thing. Isolated power is slugging without the batting average uh, overlap and maybe a contact rate metric of some kind. I'd also like to see if you're doing ratios, if you could figure out some kind of base running category. And, of course, a fielding category would be really interesting because now you've got an incentive to start grabbing some of those poorer players who are fantastic fielders. The problem there, as we both know, is what do you use for a metric? Uh, Pitchers, I thought strikeout percentage, walk percentage, hits per nine, ISO allowed, and I have a category I call percentage of starts that are Ryan quality starts, which is seven innings, three and runs or less. Did you, if you were starting a league from scratch and they came to you and said, you're the expert, design us a league where there's three or four or five categories for hitters and pitchers, but they all got to be ratios. What would you include? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about, as your time, I was thinking about the hitting. Uh, I wonder if you could do sort of a, a total bases uh, plus walks plus steals divided by plate appearances, something to that effect, so that you you incorporate you know if you you do you steal the base you so you get that in there. Um, so, but that that that's kind of like a one all inclusive one category. So now you've got everything: you got total bases, you got walks, you got steals. So I don't know what other any other category sort of by definition going to be an overlap. But I wonder if that's what you could sort of figure out, or even maybe even a category where you do batting average. And then a second category where it's maybe, you know, walks plus steals minus caught stealings divided by plate appearances or something like that, where now you're rewarding, uh, you know, some of the guys are going to be double, you know, that would be that at least off the top of my head. That's what I would sort of start to look at is is to to get the way to get steals in there is to combine. And actually, I believe I'm in a league that does that now Our our, a league, a couple guys at the AFL. Uh, that I think that that's. I don't know that it's a percentage, but I think it's a it's a walk plus steals minus caught stealing is an actual category in, in a counting stats league that I'm in. But I, I that you know that would be sort of a way to go. Pitching, yeah. I mean, you got to have something with strikeouts in there. Whether you whether you account for you know strikeouts minus walks or something that effect, I don't know. But um. At the end of the day, though, I mean, it's amazing. We come up with all these different 
categories. Now, I understand that the reason for doing this is to so make up points. Uh, you know, but the point I was going to make is is when you you know you, you then run a set of values, it's amazing how close the values are when you change these scoring categories. It doesn't change the value of the players. And I using that word because I I don't really believe in value. I think it's more potential. But the point being, uh, end of the season is value, and uh, so yeah, to make up the points in between. I wonder, uh, you know, looking at that, are we are we attacking the wrong? If that's the problem, are we attacking the wrong way of doing it, or or, or thinking of better counting stats categories, so that it's not as hard to make up points in the counting stats categories? But it's a legit, it's a legit, you know, thing to think about anyway. And it's fun to think about. I should say, and I've, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast and at baseballhq.com when I write there. And, and it's this. I like the fact that the, uh, cat, the categories are somewhat unpredictable. My big objection to having these ratio categories is that they're more projectable. They tend to be more pro- accurately projectable than the counting stats, homers, RBIs, especially in runs, especially because of team context. And to me, playing all race shows because they're highly predictable is a lot like going to the racetrack and you just bet the racing form and they never run the race. You know, there's, there's no, there's no room for luck. And the, I think it's the luck element or the unexpected performance element that really, um, that really makes it a fun game to play because it's unexpected. Yeah. And I think you just, you sort of touched on what I was thinking to the reply in that. So long as this, you know, in, well, I mean, there's high stakes, whatever. So long as the, the main purpose of doing this is for fun and entertainment, I absolutely agree that this unpredictable, you know, you, you, so you lose a league, you got some bad luck, you know, you're not a, you know, that doesn't make the person that beat you a better person. You know, it may make them 100, you know, 100 jelly beans richer for that particular year. But, you know, keeping in mind that, we, we, you know, it, it, not, it is a hobby. You still want to have as much uh, knowledge and skill involved as well. But it definitely adds to the entertainment and the fun value of it to if, to have it be a little bit underpredictable. You know, having said that, the next time we talk, we're probably going to be talking about some new metric that helps get rid of some of this luck, and that's fine too. Um, you know, we go into the high stakes, and and their rules are always gauged towards eliminating said luck. And you know what, I can understand that in the high stakes arena, but even then, I'm not. I don't want to say. I, it's all for fun for me too, because it's it's not. But um, you know, in the back of my head, saying, uh, you know, you're not going to get rid of it all. Em- embrace it. Don't don't disparage it. How are the high stakes leagues that you're playing in uh, trying to eliminate that luck? Uh, more ro- you know, more roster move uh, allow you to take a, a a pitcher who hasn't pitched that week or got scratched to be able to put in another pitcher. We already have uh, twice a week hitting moves, but if you put your pitcher, uh, for instance, David Phelps. David Phelps was uh, scratched uh, earlier this week, and if you had another guy on your bench, you would have been able to put that player in for David Phelps. Uh, you know, there there's you know, things like, well, I mean, what if he pitched on Tuesday and then got scratched on Sunday? Could I scratch him then? You know, all, all sorts of discussion. But that's sort of what they're trying to do is, is, uh, is avail more, uh, flexibility within managing. You know, my counter argument to that might be though we've only got seven reserve spots in the NFPC. Uh, maybe I got a couple injured guys. I may not have uh, a replacement on my bench to be able to put in. So I've, whenever this rule discussion has come up, I've always been you know against it. People like to say that it's it, it adds more skill, adds more strategy. 
I think there's a fine line between, I don't even think it's a fine line. I think the definitive line between common sense and skill a lot of times. Uh, a lot of times we talk about, you know, all these midweek moves or, or weekly moves as being skill. They're, you know, they're common sense. You've got a lefty that's going to face three righties. You've got a guy that's going to sit for three games. It's not skill to put Matt Joyce in there. It's obvious. So, but yet it's, it's sort of masked as sort of uh, talked about as being more strategy for the manager to do each week. So that, that's that, that's sort of one 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 possibility. And and Tout Wars actually does that. They've we as I alluded to earlier, they actually have these midweek activations and these midweek uh, um, call ups replacements to, for injured people and for minor league people. Um, it's just uh, I guess programming and everything else. The NFBC just hasn't incorporated it yet. Yeah, I think the the uh, idea that what we're doing in a lot of the moves that we make in our fantasy leagues is somehow managerial genius or you know <laughs> inspired thinking or whatever. Yeah, this guy's on the DL, that guy's not. I'm going to activate the guy who's not on the DL, and I'm going to deactivate the guy who is. Call me Branch Ricky, you know it. Just, <laughs> you know it. It it doesn't really add up. And same thing on the field. Actually, uh, I I remember reading a critique of this whole thing that the National League had the. Right managerial strategy advantage because of the no DH and somebody said yeah you bunt for the pitcher in a close game in the seventh inning wow (laughs) (laughs) you know all it does is force you to do something that you would have done anyway if you had any basic knowledge of the game it's always fun to talk about especially fun to talk about with Todd Zola Todd thanks a million and we'll catch up with you again uh, either sometime during the rest of this year or shortly thereafter when we uh, look back and analyze what what happened well uh yeah, appreciate it, and uh, just con- congratulations on the uh, on on that on that unnamed host that 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 did very well in Tout Daily and and beat me who had two tickets in it. Congratulations, PD. I'll pass that along to the unnamed podcast host. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Todd. Yep. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, RotoWire, and ESPN, and he's a regular guest expert here at Baseball HQ Radio. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about some stuff on the site at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Playing Time Today looks at news from the big leagues, including coverage of Neil Walker's season-ending injury and the effects on playing time for the Mets. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Joseph Pitliski looks ahead at the National League West, Catcher Tom Murphy in Colorado, the outfield situation in Arizona, the Dodgers rotation with the pending return of that Kershaw guy, the Giants struggling bullpen, and the ascension of Brandon Moore to the closer role in San Diego. And in the GM's column, Brent Hershey updates the performance of HQ staff in their various experts leagues. BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the Mets outfield and a stretch-run speculation on the mound in Oakland. And here to tell you more about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. As we hit September, playing time priorities are changing drastically depending on where teams sit in the standings. Clubs that are far out of the race will be sending up some of their top prospects as rosters expand to get that proverbial cup of coffee against Major League pitching late in the year. Teams in the hunt, such as the New York Mets all of a sudden, are more likely to go with the hot hand to improve their odds of playing in October. 
The Mets have been on a tear of late despite their prized trade deadline acquisition, Jay Bruce, struggling mightily down the stretch. Bruce hit just 183 with a 262 on base percentage in August with just three home runs. An extremely low hit rate or BABIP didn't help out Bruce's batting average, but his contact rate dove into the low 70s and he hit very few hard hit balls last month. Further struggles from Bruce could result in a benching as the Mets chase down that final wild card spot. So enter Michael Conforto. The 23-year-old was a hot commodity entering 2016 drafts, but he scuffled in the majors this season with a 218 batting average that has made him a frequent rider on the long Vegas to Queens shuttle this year between the majors and AAA. Conforto's still in AAA, but he's mashing, and our own Alec Dopp recently noted in his minor league watch list column that he's hitting over 400 and getting on base in nearly half of his plate appearances in AAA. Conforto's likely headed back to Queens when rosters expand, and there's a decent chance he's available in your redraft league, and he could provide some late-season profit if Jay Bruce and even Curtis Granderson continue to struggle in the Mets outfield. To the AL, we head out to Oakland, where Jock Thompson recently highlighted Andrew Triggs' move from the bullpen to rotation in a playing time tomorrow column earlier this week on BaseballHQ.com. Triggs has pitched well through his last four starts with a 20-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. He doesn't have great stuff with a low 90s fastball, but Triggs has managed to post an 11% swinging strike rate and a 137 base performance value, or BPV, which is well worth speculating on the rest of the way. Triggs has a 439 ERA on the surface this season in the majors, so if you need to take a flyer in a pitcher-friendly ballpark, Triggs may be your guy in deep leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero. If a pitcher is rated plus one or higher, he's a strong bet to start. A pitcher under minus one is a strong bet for you to sit. In between the ones, well, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance. With a look at four weekend matchups, including a big Saturday Cy Young-level showdown between San Francisco left-hander Madison Bumgarner and Cubs righty Jake Arrieta at Wrigley Field, here's BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Labor Day weekend in the U.S., and we have an interesting set of holiday weekend matchups for you, highlighted by a pair of aces facing off in hitter-friendly Wrigley Field on Saturday. There's also an interleague matchup in Cleveland on Sunday and a mixture of the old and the new in the American League on Saturday and Sunday. Let's start at the top in the National League on Saturday when two of our 2016 Fantasy Draft darlings go up against one another, both in this weekend matchup and for the National League Cy Young Award. San Francisco's Madison Bumgarner had an ADP of 28 and the Cubs' Jake Arrieta had an average draft position of 22. Their two teams' recent fortunes are reflected in their mirror image matchup ratings as Bumgarner's is minus 039 and Arietta's is plus 040. The Cubs rank first in the majors for overall record, home record, and record in their past 30 games. Versus lefties, they rank second, and they have by far the largest run differential, scoring nearly two runs more per game than they allow. In their past 30 games, the Giants rank 22nd. Against right-handers, they're 16th. And versus teams at or above 500, San Francisco has lost five games more than it's won. Even though we're in an even year, the Cubbies are coming on and the Giants look like they're going home. 
Despite the fact that both Bumgarner and Arietta have risk-reward wildcard matchup ratings, we haven't had a headliner that screams start like this one for a long time. In 188 innings over 28 games, Bumgarner has 207 strikeouts, a whip of 104, an ERA of 249, and a base performance value of 132. He has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 57% dominant to 11% disaster. In his 13 road games, Bumgarner has 5 PQS dominant starts and 2 PQS disasters. In his past 15 starts overall, he has 8 PQS dominant outings and 2 PQS disasters. No need to hold back on Bumgarner now. In a July 11 Pitcher Buyer's Guide piece, BaseballHQ.com's Stephen Nickran foretold of some chinks in Jake Arrieta's armor. A hit rate of 24%, a strand rate of 83%, a home run per fly ball rate of 6%, and a first pitch strike rate of 58%. Nick Rand correctly predicted that Arietta's ERA and control rate, or walks per nine innings pitched, both would rise as that fortunate combination normalized. Arietta's ERA is at a three-year high of 284, and his control rate is at a three-year high of 3.5, bringing his base performance value to a three-year low of 93. Still, in his past 10 home starts, Arietta is averaging a PQS score of 3-3. Even if he's not as good as we thought, he's still good enough to start in this one. For our interleague matchup on Sunday, we'll follow the Miami Marlins into Progressive Field, the basically neutral home of the Cleveland Indians. Both on the road and versus right-handers, the Fish have lost 11 games more than they've won. The Tribe is 19 games over 500 at home and 6 games over 500 against right-handers. Miami scores and allows about four runs per game, and while the Indians also allow about four runs per game, they score about five. Cleveland clearly has the edge. Tom Kohler's recommended sit matchup rating of minus 123 reflects the standard operating procedure for his starts away from home. He has three PQS dominant starts each at home and on the road, but only two PQS disasters at home compared with six on the road. Kohler's average PQS score away from home is 2, and it makes sense for you to stay away from him this weekend. Danny Salazar has been stumbling of late with 5 PQS disasters in his past 7 starts, and 4 of those disasters were at home. Since mid-May, Salazar has missed starts, had extra rest, and been removed early to keep his pitch counts down because of elbow soreness that landed him on the disabled list at the beginning of August and shoulder fatigue. In 16 and a third innings pitched over his past five outings, Salazar has given up 25 hits, 12 walks, and 21 earned runs. His risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 034 is much more risk than reward, and there are hints of serious health concerns for Salazar. It's safer to stay away from him this weekend. Our first American League matchup is on Saturday in Baltimore's hitter-friendly Camden Yards, where the O's are 20 games over 500 for the third-best home record in Major League Baseball. But Baltimore has not been able to win more than it's lost over its past 10, 20, or 30 games. The Yanks are three games under 500 on the road, but two, four, and six games over 500 in their past 10, 30, and 20 games respectively. Still, the Birds get the edge based on that happy home record. 35-year-old CC Sabathia is still starting for the New York Yankees. In the 2016 forecaster, Jock Thompson wrote, quote, Neither reliable nor profitable for three years. Age, health, say that's unlikely to change, unquote. Sure enough, Sabathia's whip is 135. His expected ERA is 426. His command ratio of strikeouts to walks is 2.3. His base performance value is the lowest it's been in 12 years at 78, and his roto value is $1. For his 24 starts, Sabathia's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 21% dominant to 29% disaster. 
In four starts against Baltimore, he has PQS scores of 5, 4, 3, and 2 for an average PQS score of 3.5. His risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 063 is right on. Let your circumstances dictate your decision on whether or not you run him out there. The Orioles hope Kevin Gosman and Dylan Bundy can infuse their rotation with both youth and ability. BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide analyst Stephen Nickrand recently noted that Gosman is doing his part at home more than on the road. In Camden Yards, Gosman had a whip of 104 and an ERA of 239. Against the Yankees, Gosman has three PQS fours, one at home and two on the road. His PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 29% dominant to 21% disaster. With a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 016, the question is whether you want to emulate the Orioles and make an investment in Gosman for your pennant push this weekend. Our final stop is in Texas to top off our weekend with a showdown at Arlington's hitter-friendly Globe Life Park, where the hometown Rangers host their in-state rivals, the Houston Astros. The Rangers are 24 games over 500 at home and 23 games over 500 versus righties, second only to the Cubs in both cases. Against teams at or above 500, Texas is an MLB best 30 games over 500. Houston is 10 games below 500 against teams at or above 500, one game under 500 on the road, and even though they're seven games over 500 against right-handers, the Astros are overmatched overall. Houston's young right-hander Joe Musgrove carries a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 175 into the contest, despite having thrown a PQS 5 at the Rangers in his first Major League start. He then had a fine PQS 4 start against the equally tough Toronto Blue Jays after shutting them out for four and a third innings in relief for his Major League debut. In his first 18 and a third innings pitched, he struck out 21. But he followed those three efforts with consecutive PQS disaster zeros in his next two outings at Baltimore and Pittsburgh, giving up 13 earned runs on 19 hits in nine and a third innings, striking out only four. He did bounce back with a PQS 3 versus Oakland at home in Houston, but he's on the road this time to face a formidable opponent, and though he may do better than expected, it's too early in his career and too late in your season to jump on his bandwagon just yet, unless you're in an all-out, anything-goes mode. In 72 innings pitched over 8 starts since returning from Tommy John surgery, Hugh Darvish is doing something very few other pitchers have ever done. He's actually improving his control rate to a career-best 2.6 walks per 9 innings, while maintaining his 2014 dominance rate of 11.3 strikeouts per 9 innings. His 5 PQS dominant starts, including 4 in his past 6 outings, give him a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 42% dominant to 0% disaster. Darvish's matchup rating of 077 isn't quite in the recommended start range, but you should certainly send him out there for your team. So as we start September this weekend, you can confidently start Madison Bumgarner, Jake Arrieta, and Hugh Darvish. Depending upon your circumstances, you might take risks for the potential rewards with CC Zabathia and Kevin Gosman. But you're better off staying away from Tom Kohler, Danny Salazar, and Joe Musgrove. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about the thrilling tale of my Tout Daily Championship run. In most circumstances, the 12th run in a 12-1 blowout is the essence of meaningless. But for me, in last Friday's Tout Daily Championship Final, a blowout 12th run was the difference between winning the gold and the silver. 
In case you didn't see the extra edition of the New York Times announcing the news, I won the second annual Tout Daily Contest with a heart-pounding, come-from-behind, down-to-the-wire, one-point, heavily-hyphenated win over Tristan Cockroft of ESPN, an excellent player and a pregame favorite. The final score was 84.66 to 83.66. Eno Saris finished third at 80.66, and Brian Walton was fourth at 79 even. It was really thrilling to win the competition over Tristan and so many other great players, and it was doubly thrilling, if not a bit heart-pounding, to win it the way it happened. You can read all the details on how I built my championship roster in a free article at the BaseballHQ.com website. I do want to mention that I selected Cleveland outfielder Brandon Geyer because he looked like he was in a good matchup. He's a lefty masher at 449 Woba this year, 377 for his career, and he was facing the Rangers' Martin Perez, who was allowing a 343 Woba versus right-handed hitters this year. Geyer chipped in seven big points for a relatively small salary, including the most critical points, as we shall see. As play began, I checked over all 15 rosters in the competition, and I was heartened to see that Tristan had six of the same eight hitters I had. Gary Sanchez, Mike Napoli, Daniel Murphy, Josh Donaldson, Robbie Grossman, and Stephen Piscotti. As I said, Tristan is a very skilled player, so the fact that we were simpatico on so many players was reassuring to me. The biggest edge he seemed to have among his hitters was that where I had Brandon Geyer in the outfield, he had Bryce Harper. But with so many players in common, you can bet Tristan and I were in a horse race almost the entire night. At around 9.15 in the evening, I hit the 55-point mark, and I was in the lead. I immediately emailed the league asking for a timeout. Tristan's Sultan of Stat Squad was fifth, eight points back. We jockeyed back and forth for a couple of hours as the 7 o'clock game started wrapping. We were a point or two apart all the time, and it was too close to call. I was starting to worry because of our two different hitters, Harper versus Geyer. With the finish line in sight, Tristan had edged in front by a single point, 83.66 to 82.66, and sure enough, Harper had eight points to Geyer's five. I was down to two active batters. Napoli and Geyer were playing in Arlington in that blowout win over Texas. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, Cockroft also owned Napoli, so I could get no gain there. It would be Geyer or nothing. Even worse, Geyer had just finished batting in the top of the eighth, so he seemed highly unlikely to hit again. I thought my goose was cooked. But Cleveland kept the meaningless eighth inning rally going, with the result that Geyer would get one more plate appearance. He was due third in the top of the ninth. A sliver of hope. But then I realized the Rangers had replaced left-handed pitcher Dario Alvarez with right-hander Keone Kila in the eighth, and Geyer's Woba versus right-handed pitching suggested a poor plate appearance at best and a pinch hitter at worst, although I thought that was unlikely given the one-sided score. Then came a minor miracle. The Rangers replaced right-hander Kila with another lefty. Now I was hoping that maybe one of the first two hitters for the Indians would reach scoring position, and that Geyer would get me a point with a single to tie it, and another point with the resulting RBI to win it. Oddly, though an extra base hit was the simplest way for Geyer to win it for me, that thought never crossed my mind. Sure enough, in the ninth, Carlos Santana walked and was pushed to second on a hit by Jose Ramirez. Geyer came up and fell behind nothing in two, but then he lined a single to right. I was tied for the Tout Daily Championship. 
I was following the game on MLB.com's game day system, so I actually thought I might have won, with Santana having been in scoring position for Geyer's single. Nope, they held him at third, and I nearly fainted. Now I was depending on Geyer himself to score from first base with the bottom of the order due for Cleveland. I actually thought, you know, a tie might be a fitting way for this contest to finish. As if reading those thoughts, Abraham Almonte grounded out third to first, scoring Santana with a truly meaningless run and pushing Ramirez around to third. Critically for my lingering chances, Geyer had moved up to scoring position at second base. But due up next was the nine-hole hitter, catcher Roberto Perez, who had come into the game batting 104, although slightly better versus left-handers. As I said, I was following the game on game day, and all it said was, ball in play, run. That's run, singular. I knew Ramirez had scored, but while I waited for the feed to refresh, I didn't know what had happened to Geyer. Then the refresh came through, saying Perez had singled, and Geyer had scored as well. I was leading the Tout Daily Championship by a single point. And, with only Mike Napoli left, also on my roster, Cockroft couldn't catch me. But the win was still in doubt until the last inning of the last game on the West Coast. First, Eno Saris had Jeff Samarja pitching at home against the anemic Braves. Eno needed 22 points to climb into top spot, and a high-inning Shark win with no runs and double-digit strikeouts could have done the job. But Samarja came up short. He did get the win, and he pitched seven innings of shutout ball, but he left with just six Ks, a 17-point performance that left Eno five points behind. I was still leading. The last threat was from Brian Walton, another excellent player. Brian could have won by a third of a point with a late home run by Addison Russell playing at L.A. Like Geyer, Russell had batted in the eighth, and with L.A. leading 4-3 to three and handing the ball to lights-out closer Kenley Jansen, Russell seemed unlikely to see another at-bat. But while I was composing my victory speech, Jansen allowed a hit and eventually threw a wild pitch that tied the game. No Dodger heroics in the bottom of the ninth, so off we went to extra innings. Chris Bryant hit a two-run jack for the Cubs, then after a flyout and a single, who should come to the bat? but Addison Russell. He battled, but he flew out. The Cubs scored no more runs, and Aroldis Chapman came in for the bottom of the ninth to get a ground out, two strikeouts, and a save. The threat was vanquished, and I was the 2016 winner of the Tout Daily Championship. As champion, I'll get a small cash prize, and I get to name a dish after myself next March at the Tout Wars annual dinner at Foley's New York Pub and Grill. I love the excellent Foley's Warm Turkey Sandwich, which I want to rename for the occasion the Davit Fowl Sandwich, because I'm hoping people order it by saying, I'll have a DFS. This is the last Master Notes for the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks so much for listening to me ramble, and for all the kind comments at bhqradio at gmail.com and at the baseballhq.com site. I do appreciate the kind words. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 42 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. 
As you guys know, I really enjoy talking with Todd, and he's one of my favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield, and our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. Rob Gordon and Alex Becky were on holiday this week. They'll be back soon. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days when our Friday feature guest expert will be Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Rays blog, theprocessreport.net. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.